24 again, and this has become sort of a text for me for this series on a shelf by itself. What do you think the question I hear most from uh, particularly young people today is about the Bible? Uh, Often, several times a year, some young person will walk up to me or email me or in some way communicate to me and ask me a question. You know the question that they, they say to me the most often? How do we know that the books that are in our Bible are the ones that are supposed to be there? How do we know that there are some books that were supposed to be in there that didn't get in there? How do we know that some of the books in there shouldn't be in there? How do we know what they're asking me to use? A big word is, how do we know what is involved in canonicity? And that's a big word, so I won't impress you anymore. But uh, how do we know what books ought to be in the Bible and which ones not? That's dealing with the canon of Scripture. And this is a hard subject to deal with. First of all, I'm not going to use a lot of Scripture. I have to go outside the Scripture on much of it. But it's very important. Now, I'm, I'm doing everything I can to make a very difficult subject very, very simple and clear. I know this is not a uh, seminary theology class, and I'm teaching pretty heavy theology as part of this. On the other hand, there's nothing you need more. If you can't defend the Scripture, you can have your faith pulled right out from under you. And so, I don't care how long you've been saved or what quality your spiritual life may be, you need to understand why God's Word is what we say it is. It is the foundation of this church. If we're wrong on this, then we're wrong on everything else here. Amen? Do you believe that? We're wrong on this one. If we get this one wrong, they're all messed up. And, 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 and Christians today have bought in so much to this entertainment mindset. I want the preacher to entertain me. We need some more you know, some sensational things to keep me interested. We, we're, we're the television generation. We've got to have a break every th- six minutes for the commercial. And we can't think deeply and we can't think very long at a time. So the experts tell us about the general population of the country. And so I want you to think tonight with me because I want you to get this really settled. By the way, you can get the CDs for this series immediately after the service, or at least the one from tonight. We've, we've got it now to where we can make these available. We're working to improve our delivery of those, but we want you to have them. They're only $2. And, I, and put these in. I, 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 would, I don't promote the CDs much. I don't promote my messages much. But I wish everybody here get a whole set of this because this is absolutely fundamental and foundational. When we get through with the series, I'm going to make available uh, the entire uh, detailed outlines, even more detailed than what I'm preaching from, because I want you to have it as a Bible study aid. I want you, you've got to know this or you're going to be unsteady in what you believe about the Scripture. In Matthew 24 and 35, in a great prophetic passage, Jesus made a promise, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall never pass away. Heaven and earth may pass away. The universe may be destroyed, but my word, the word of God, the Bible, will never pass away. Now, he promised then to preserve his word. And his promise of preserving his word would include getting the right books into the Bible, wouldn't it? So that they would be passed on and preserved. And keeping the wrong books out of the Bible. The canon of Scripture, we call it. Why do we use that word canon? I don't mean a canon like boom, boom, a gun. When we use the word canon, it's an old, old word, but we still use it in popular circles. A canon in the old days, the ancient world, was a reed that was of a certain dimension. I don't know how long it was, but like our yardstick. 
The canon in, those, in Bible days was like a tape measure. It was a measurement of, uh, it was a device to measure things. And you would measure something, and that would be the official me- measurement of it. And so the canon of Scripture measures the Scripture to see if it's authentic. And when we talk about the canon of Scripture, we mean the books that are in the Bible that have been chosen and are authentic parts of God's Word, the canon. They have the books that have measured up from that word measure. Look back to your Bible, the very beginning of your Bible, and you see the listing of the books of the Bible just in the first three or four pages. You see there the name, mine says the names in the order of all the books of the Old and New Testament. And so you have the listing of the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi. Then you have the books of the New Testament, Matthew through Revelation. In the Old Testament, you have 39 books. In the New Testament, you have 27 books. And the two of them together, you have 66 books. Those 66 books are called the canon, the canon of Scripture, the books that measured up, 66 of them. How do we know there's not, there shouldn't have been 67 of them or 69 of them or 100 of them? How do we know there shouldn't have been 48 of them and not 66? How do we measure the books of the Bible? How were the books that are in the Bible determined to be worthy to be in the Bible, the canon of Scripture? Well, I have to begin with a little tiny bit of review to talk about the preservation of the Scripture. The first five books of the Old Testament were written by Moses. We call that the Torah. The Jews call it the Torah. We call it the Pentateuch, five penna. The law, if you will. When Jesus referred to the law in the Old Testament, he, he was specifically referring to the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 31, would you like to turn with me there, please? In Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 24, I want you to read with me. It came to pass when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book until they were finished, completed, that Moses commanded the Levites. The Levites are the priests. Moses commanded the Levites who bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for witness against you. And so they took Moses' Torah, his five books of the law, and they put it into the ark of the covenant where it remained in safekeeping in the temple and in the tabernacle in those days. And the priests were given the responsibility for safeguarding and keeping the law. Now I talked to you about how that the priest guarded the law, and how that they had this professional class of people called the copyists, the scribes, who laboriously copied, hand-copied it, but how precise they were. Because we can't copy things accurately. We think nobody else can, but it wasn't like that. We, we depend upon a printing press. They didn't depend upon a printing press. They depended upon their own human accuracy. And did they make mistakes? Sure, they made mistakes. There's nobody who's perfect, and they weren't either. However, they made far fewer than you and I would think they would make because they counted the letters in every document, the A's, the B's, the C's. They would count then those same letters in the copy. Do they match up? They used a special pen to write the name of God. They took a break every few minutes so they would not be fatigued. They had people who read behind them to, to make sure that the, that the scrolls were accurate. They had such diligence because they had such reverence for the Word of God, far more than, than we know anything about today. They always kept a copy of it at the temple. There was a, a copy in, in the uh, Ark of the Covenant, but there were copies available in the temple for people to come and to read in those days. And by the way, they read in those days. The Jews were a very literate people. 
And if you look there in Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 12 and 13, it's the verse we've used for Sunday school, but really it's not talking about Sunday school there. It's talking about gathering all the nation of Israel together, and after you gather them together, you read the Bible. And in their public services, they read and read and read the Bible. We stand and we learn a verse of Scripture for about two or three minutes. They would read copious amounts of Scripture. The priest would read aloud to the people. You go to the book of Ezra. You got Ezra reading on a pulpit made of wood high up above the people so everybody could see. And he read for hours when they came back from the captivity. Hours and hours of public reading. And these people had heard the Scriptures read so much that they had vast amounts of it committed to memory. Don't judge the Old Testament Jew and his diligence toward the Word of God by the average Baptist that you know today. It's not the same thing. I mean, these people were fanatically committed to the accuracy and the integrity of the Word of God like very few people ever. Now, we come to the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament. And so the Old Testament was kept by these priests, if you will, and translated and copied. And I talked to you about how it ended up being accurate last week. The first New Testament books were written about 15 years after Jesus had died and gone back to heaven. Jesus ascended back to heaven, we believe, in 33 A.D. The first books were written about 15 years later, about 47 or 48 A.D., and they were the epistles of Paul. The, the books of Paul were the first written in the New Testament, the earliest written. And these books then, of course, were letters to churches. And as I illustrated with my chest last week, the letter to Ephesus, the letter to the Galatian churches, the letter to Rome. And these people would have this scroll. And they said, we treasure this. This is a letter from Paul. This is God's Word that God gave him for our church here at Rome or at Corinth or wherever it was, at Thessalonica. And they brought in the copyist who would copy that for them in the same manner that I've just described from the Old Testament. And the church over here somewhere else would say, you know, we don't have any copies of that scroll. We'll come over and listen to you read it. And they would read for hours in the Scriptures. They would say, we're going to send one of our copyists over, and we're going to copy that. And so now that church had a copy. And some other church further away would say, well, we're going to go over to the church number two, and we're going to get that, our copies to go over, and we'll get a, a copy of the, the Holy Scriptures. And thus and so to where all over the Roman Empire, the Middle East in those days, these copies of Scripture were floating around that had been copied by co Christians who were committed to being able to preserve the Word of God. And, and the last book of the, of the New Testament was written in about 97 A.D. That would be the book of Revelation. So for about a 50-year period of time from 47 to 97, the New Testament was in process of being written by the original authors, and, of course, copies continued to be made. Let me tell you how impressive it is when you really begin to study this. These handwritten copies now are being made all over the Roman Empire. Each church is collecting its copies of the New Testament. They're reading them in public every service that they have, and they usually met daily rather than weekly or bi-weekly as we do. Today, after all of these years, we have 5,255 handwritten Greek manuscript copies of the Scriptures in existence that we can locate today. They're in the British Museum. They're in Russia in the museums. They're in a number of the capitals of Europe. There a few rich people have them in their collections. They're incredibly expensive. Uh, uh, just a fragment of Scripture will sell for a hundred, or not Scripture, but of copies of Scripture, ancient copies, will sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars at an au auction even today. The uh, manuscript disco discovered by Tichendorf and Mount Sinai, Sinai's uh, monastery in 1850-something 
sold for millions of dollars back then. The Tsar of Russia bought it. And today it's in the British Museum. And it's not even the best copy, Sinaiticus. But people treasure those things. But most of them are in museums or in university libraries kept for posterity. Now, so these these 5,255 Greek manuscripts, that's just Greek copies. We have 8,000 Latin ones. We have Syriac ones. We have Aramaic ones. We have uh, Egyptian copies. We have all kinds of copies, thousands and thousands of them. What impresses me about that is if you compare the manuscript copies we have of the Bible to any other ancient document, it's incredible. When you went to college or high school, particularly if you went to college and took ancient literature, you had to read Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, or at least excerpts from it. You all remember Homer? Homer's not the most interesting fellow I ever read after, but I had to take a little bit of it like everybody does. Do you know how many copies of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey there is in the earth? There's not even a whole copy. And what there is, there's one or two copies. I can't remember. One or two. You never heard any English professor get up and say, you know, I don't think that Homer really lived and it was an authentic copy. But we have 5,255 copies of the Bible. And, well, we don't think the Bible's really valid. Is that not? Did Satan get into that somewhere? Do you know how many copies of Aristotle we have? Do you know how many copies of Cicero we have or Julius Caesar's writings? One or two or three? And we got 15 or 20,000 manuscript copies of the Bible that all say essentially the same thing. And the skeptics say we don't believe the Bible, but we believe Cicero and Julius Caesar. Whoever heard anybody say they didn't exist or that? Is that not the craziest thing you ever heard? That we are so, the world is so willfully blind and ignorant about the Word of God. All these thousands and thousands of copies. And these manuscripts have remarkable agreement. One expert I read said they are 85% in agreement. Another one said 95%. I don't know pick you, how do you even pick that. But at any rate, there's not one single basic Christian doctrine that is not taught in the worst of those manuscripts, in the worst of them. Now, we might argue about the quality of them, but the worst manuscript, the worst translation of the Bible has some parts of it that's good, but not 85 to 95 percent agreement between those thousands of manuscripts. They all say the same thing, and no essential doctrine is lost in any one of them. So that's how the Scripture came down. We didn't have printing presses until four, about 1400, 1450. So now we come to the canon of Scriptures. Back in the early days, the first and second century, there was about 40 known books floating around the Middle East that claimed to be inspired Scripture, claimed to be part of the Bible, 40 or so different Gospels and books. You can look it up on the Internet, and you can see the extra-biblical Gospels and books there, a Gospel according to Barnabas, a Gospel according to Mary Magdalene. They got all this stuff here, but it's not in your Bible. It's not in the canon of Scripture. It didn't measure up. It didn't meet the criterion for inspired Scripture. It doesn't mean that everything in it's bad. You can learn some history from those things, secular history perhaps, or about current events of the day, but it didn't measure up. It didn't meet the criterion for being a part of the Bible, the canon of Scripture. Some books made it, some didn't. What's the difference? About 10 or 15 years ago, one of the most well-known novelists in America is a man named Dan Brown. He claims to be a Catholic. Honestly, I don't think he's anything. I think he's a skeptic. And he wrote a novel, and it took the country by storm. 
the Da Vinci Code, big, thick book. And I preached three or four sermons on it because it so struck at the heart of what the Christian faith was about. A movie was made of it, and it swept everybody's attention, and across the country people were talking about the Da Vinci Code. The plot line of the Da Vinci Code was this, that Dan Brown raised the possibility that there were a lot of books, and specifically one or two that he named, that told facts about Jesus that the church of that day did not want in, entered into the Bible. And so these books were never included in the canon of Scripture, but these books told a story that needed to be told, and it was sort of the plot line of the Da Vinci Code. And what was it that he said about those books? He said, well, I think the book that he used, if I remember right, was the book by Mary, supposedly by Mary Magdalene. He said that when Jesus hung on the cross, he really didn't die, but that he sort of went into an unconscious state, a swoon, if you will. They put it, the tomb sort of revived him, the cool, damp air, the quiet and that his disciples went there and stole his body. The same old theory it has been circulating for centuries. They stole his body, and they took him to Egypt. And there they treated him with these herbs and brought him, nourished him and brought him back to health. And that during that time, Jesus married Mary Magdalene. And that he had a child by her. She was pregnant, and during the time of her pregnancy... Jesus died. And there were threats against her life to kill her. So she left the country and went to France. And she had this child in France that later on became the bloodline of the royal houses of Europe, the royal bloodline of the European, European royalty, kings and queens that followed. And this was the plot line of the so-called Da Vinci Code. Boy, did he create doubt. I mean, he shook people up. And the reason that he shook people up is they didn't understand how we got our Bible. They didn't understand that the Holy Spirit was working to protect our Bible from day one. They didn't understand that the Bible was inspired of God, not just a bunch of fables written by people of various sorts. And he really did pull the rug out from a lot, the faith of a lot of Christians. So what were the standards by which b books were admitted into the Bible in those early days? Well, first of all, there, I don't want you to think that some church council met and decided on what would be in the Bible and what would not be in the Bible. That didn't happen. It's not like that. The church council met they made a list of, of books that were in the Bible, but the churches had already established that by their usage. The church councils just merely formalized what was already happening by practice in the churches. Do you all understand that? Did that make sense? The, the churches, for four centuries, had been recognizing some books as being inspired and other books as being uninspired. And finally, in 400 and something, the councils met and said, well, these are going to be the books that are in the Bible. But the churches had already decided. Now, I told you something significant a while ago, if you believe in the supernatural, and I do. In the Old Testament, who did I say had the responsibility for keeping the Word of God? Who were the custodians of the Old Testament scrolls? The priests. When we come to the New Testament, it's an interesting thing. Who are the priests now? Do you know our doctrine, the priesthood of the believer? I believe that the New Testament, God entrusted the keeping of the Word of God to His people who were Spirit-filled people in those churches in the early days of primitive Christianity. If you're going to take the Bible and look at it like you do any other secular document, you're not going to be able to, very frankly, answer all the questions. 
because there's some big gaps there, unknown, and nobody knows the answer. But if you believe in the supernatural nature of the Bible, supernaturally revealed, supernaturally inspired, supernaturally preserved, and I gave you all the evidences in a whole message why we believe that. If you believe in the supernatural nature of the Bible, then that's not a very big leap for you to believe. And so the churches, the people in the churches, and I think the Holy Spirit in those people recognized truth, and they recognized error. And, of course, there were some standards that they had for it, though. Number one, every one of those documents had to be written by either an apostle or someone closely associated with the apostles, an eyewitness of the accounts that they wrote about, no secondhand information. Like we require of a witness in a jury today, or a witness in a court. We don't allow second-hand testimony. That's simply gossip with, in many cases. It had to be an eyewitness account. Now, all of the New Testament was written by an apostle, men specially designated by God himself to be the foundation of the, of the New Testament church. There were four exceptions in the New Testament. You look at your entire New Testament, it's, in, it's completely written by apostles except four books. The first one would be the book of Mark. Who was Mark? Mark was probably a cousin of Simon Peter. If he was not his cousin, at least he was his assistant. And many of the scholars refer to the book of Mark as Peter's epistle, Peter's gospel. He was so closely associated with Peter that uh, we believe that Peter may have even been involved in the writing of it, just didn't put his name on it. But you have Mark, Peter's associate. Then you have Luke, who you can trace him all the way back to the days of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You look at chapter 1 and verse 3. And he tells you that about himself. He said, I was an eyewitness of all the miracles of Jesus Christ. Jesus had other followers than just the 12, remember. And though Luke was not an apostle, he was Paul's associate. And the Holy Spirit worked through him. Holy men of God spake as they were moved of the Holy Spirit. Then there were two other writers. They were not apostles. James, who wrote the book of James, not, he was not the James from the 12. He was murdered in Acts chapter 12. The James I'm talking about is the James who is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Same mother, different father. And Jude, the little book of Jude, was written by Jude, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Jesus had four other brothers, half-brothers. Two of them wrote books in the New Testament, James and Jude. So it's a very tight inner circle. The apostles, Peter, Paul, Matthew, John, so on. And then you have four others outside that, but who were eyewitnesses, who were involved in all the accounts of Christ's life. No secondhand information. So one of the standards of being in the Bible was it would have to be written by an apostle or an eyewitness closely associated with the apostles who were a part of their ministry and their doctrine. Number two, the writings could not contradict any uh, accepted scripture, including the Old Testament books. And so they just, the church, people in the churches threw out anything that was contradictory to say, the book of Isaiah or the book of Genesis. They wanted the Scripture to be, that, that, that was a telltale sign. If the Old Testament was inspired of God and somebody offered a new view and it contradicted that which they believed was inspired, then by default it would be kicked out. Number three, the writings were read and accepted in the churches. And as I told you, there were people, according to church history, that could quote almost the entire New Testament by heart. They had heard it read so many times. They were, 
we have a few people like that around the world today who can quote maybe the entire Old Testament or New Testament. And, and that was not uncommon in those days because they depended upon an, an oral tradition. And then there is the supernatural dimension. Do I believe that the Holy Spirit was the keeper, the superintendent, the overseer of the Scriptures? Now, it depends on how big your God is, which you can believe about your Bible. I read about a Chinese evangelist. I can't even say his name. He's a Bible-believing Christian in China. He's an evangelist. And he has on his letterhead these words, The sun stood still, the iron did float. This is my God. Don't you like that? The sun stood still, the iron did float. This is my God. Now, if your God is so small that he can't handle the transmission of the Scriptures, then, you know, you've got a bigger problem, don't you? The God of the Bible was able to preserve the Scriptures that he gave to us. And there's one other major factor in the canon. Persecution came on these people, unbelievable persecution. And so here I am. I'm a first-century Christian. I'm sitting here reading my scroll or my codex, or they come to the church. I probably didn't have one for myself, but we're at the church. And the Roman authorities come, and they break down the door, and they come rolling in. And here we have the scroll out on the table. We're reading it in the church to all the people. The people are listening. We're worshiping God. And here's the scroll. And the Roman says, okay, everybody stand up. And he brings in his people. They begin to manacle the brothers and sisters one by one, tie them up. We're going to carry them out. We're going to put you in prison. We're going to burn you at the stake. We're going to throw you to the lines because you've got that scroll laying there that you claim is the Word of God. You claim to be Christians. Persecution weeded out an awful lot of spurious Scripture in those days. Would you die for something you didn't really believe in or believe it was the pure Word of God? And yet these people are dying in droves by the thousands around the Roman world. So year after year and year after year and year after year, they're reading the Scripture. Give attendance to reading, Paul wrote to Timothy. Give attendance to reading. He didn't mean reading the Bible himself. He didn't have a copy of it to read for himself like you and I do. Read it publicly. Read it every time the church gathers together. And they read it 30 minutes, an hour every time they met. They weren't watching the clock like we do in America. The churches read the Scripture. They copied the Scripture. They studied the Scripture for over 300 years. And during that time, they had weeded out the spurious books of the Bible. And now they knew what was Scripture and what was not. And finally, the council met, and they handed down one of their edicts, or two or three of them, in fact, And they simply formalized what the churches had already been practicing for three centuries. They didn't determine the canon. They just simply put their stamp upon it. Now then people say, well, what about the Apocrypha? If you're not familiar with the Apocrypha, the Apocrypha is, what is it, 14, 17 books, something like that, fit in between the Old and New Testament. They were written during the time between the Testaments, the intertestamental period is what they call it in college, intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament, 430 years or so there. So these books were written called the Apocrypha. And in the Catholic Bible, they're still there. Now, this will really shake some of you. In the first few editions of the King James Bible, they were there. I have an original edition King James Bible copy, and in it is the full Apocrypha in the original King James Bible. Somewhere along the line, though, we quit putting them in there. Even then, they didn't argue that they were 
inspired. Martin Luther had the Apocrypha in his German Bible in the Reformation. But he said, I'm going to put it in there for historical purposes. It has a lot of good, important facts, but it's not really inspired. And why, was it, why is the Apocrypha not in, the, in our Bible today? Well, because, number one, it fails the test of canonicity. It wasn't written by prophets. You wouldn't recognize the names of anybody that wrote it. It wasn't written by an apostle or even an eyewitness to the events of Jesus' life. And most of all, it contains things that are contrary to other places in the Bible. It's full of contradictions. In fact, and it has these absurd stories that have no purpose. For example, Jesus is playing with little boys and girls, and they're making figures, little, uh, animal figures and birds and so on out of mud like children would be doing. And the difference in Jesus and the other children is that he makes a little bird out of mud, and then he holds it up in his hand, and he says, watch here. And the other kids look, and the bird flies off, the mud pie bird. But there's no point to that. There's no evidence that Jesus ever did that. In fact, that contradicts the Bible. What does it contradict? The Bible specifically says the first miracle was what? Turning the water into wine. He said that, didn't it? So we know Jesus wasn't letting little birds fly out of his hand made out of mud when he was a boy to entertain the little boys and girls around him. So on the face of it, the evidence of it, the apocryphal just didn't make the cut. Now, turn to the book of Revelation because I'm trying to weave several things here together to just sort of begin to pull the end of this series together. And in the book of Revelation, the last page of your Bible. So the canon was, I've told you how the canon was established. Well, another question people have, though, and there's a lot of people today across the world that believe, well, but the Bible's not the only thing that God ever says to people, is it? Couldn't we maybe, who says that there couldn't somebody come along and write more books that ought to be in the Bible that would be inspired? What is to keep the Lord from inspiring someone else? And they write another book that deserves to be in the Bible. Well, we believe the canon is closed. And so we use that kind of terminology. The canon of Scripture is closed. There's not going to be any more Scripture, period. So we go to Revelation. And we prove that here in verse 18 of chapter 22. I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in the book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in the book. So the Bible is absolutely emphatic. We are not to add one word to what God has said, and we're not to take one word away from what God has said. Everybody that sees that and hears that, say amen. amen. We're not to add to it, and we're not to take away from it. But you know something I said this morning? Oh, let me give you one other reference. Turn right back, if you will, to Jude, verse 3 there. You're in Revelation. Jude, verse 3. I like this passage just as much as I do Revelation. You don't often hear it quoted there. Jude, verse 3. It talks about we're to contend for the faith. We're to defend the Scripture, the Christian faith. And how does it refer to the faith? Once delivered to the saints. One time delivered to the saints. There will be no continuing revelation. There will not be more additions to the faith. And there certainly can be no deletions to the faith. Once delivered, and delivered forever, the canon of Scripture. Now, this morning I said there are some things that are undermining the sufficiency of the Scripture, the belief that the Word of God is enough. I named psychology, number one. Number two, the marketing philosophy that we don't, that there's a better model for the church than Acts chapter two. 
the seeker-sensitive marketing thing. Go find what people want and offer it to them, and you will attract the people that way. And you will attract the people. I don't know if you'll attract them to the Lord or not, but you can attract people that way. And the third thing I mentioned was that the Scripture's sufficiency is undermined if we think we need more. And I use the term mysticism, mysticism. Do we have any mystics in the house? You probably wouldn't say you are. But this is very, very uh, contemporary because there's a constant emphasis today in our churches that I think is basically based on the idea of mysticism. What is mysticism? If you want to write down a definition, mysticism is looking inside for truth, to look inside for truth. To look for truth, uh, to, to look for God to speak to you from intuition, that you will have some intuition, or that you will have some experience, some feeling, or that you will hear a voice, or that you will just have this overwhelming impression, mysticism. You'll look down inside, and God will reveal truth that He hasn't revealed in the Bible. And that undermines, you can see how that undermines our belief in the sufficiency of Scripture. The Scripture is not enough. We have to look inside for more. And there are that, be careful of that terminology. People are looking for more than they can find in the inspired Scriptures, the holy book, the Bible. And you're seeing it everywhere today. And Christians... And I'm not talking specifically to anybody here, but on the whole, I don't want to be an insult. There's no more gullible group of people in the whole world than Bible-believing Christians. They just, anything that gets in the water in front of them like a hungry bass, they'll grab it and eat it. I'll give you an illustration or two. There's been a whole spate of books one of them was a guy who was a youth pastor in a Baptist church, of all things, down in Texas. His name was Don Piper. He was in a car wreck. They thought he was dead, and they put him in a body bag and hauled him to the hospital, unzipped it. When they got him there, he woke up. And he wrote a book called 90 Minutes in Heaven. The Christian public bought it like peanuts. Man, they went after it like crazy. I might even be talking to somebody who has a copy of it. Or you might have had somebody offer you a copy of it. Ninety minutes in heaven. He said, I died and I went to heaven. And he describes it. I had a person that I really, really thought knew God's Word challenge me about that book. And they said to me, in essence, he said that in heaven there were, they played music like we don't have on earth, that there are sounds in heaven that we don't, we've never heard. He said there are colors in heaven unlike any colors we've ever seen on earth. He said in heaven, everybody was singing and playing instruments, and they were all playing different songs, but it sounded good. It all blended together. And Christians across America are eating this stuff up on what basis am I supposed to believe that? I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I've spent my life, 40-some years, studying the Bible virtually every day of my life. Ask my wife for hours. It goes against everything my Bible teaches. I don't know what's in heaven except one way what God's Word says is in heaven, and that's it. And I'm not so gullible. And if, if, the, if the deacons of this church all die together and come back from the dead and stand on my bed and tell me what it's like, I ain't going to believe them. <laughs> I'm going to believe what the Bible says about heaven, period. Now we've got a sequel. We've got something even more. We've got a four-year-old boy who supposedly was having an appendectomy and his spirit left his body and he died and he went to heaven. And years later, 
His daddy wrote down the account. His daddy is a pastor of a church. And his daddy wrote the book, and it's called Heaven is for Real, and it's a best-selling book, and it's also now a big movie. And Christians go and I re- look on the Internet and read some of the comments people make. I never really believed in heaven until now, but I believe in it now. I know that little boy told exactly the truth. Now, I don't mean that the little boy didn't tell the truth. I'm not accusing the little boy of being a liar. I'm accusing the little boy of being confused and wrong. I don't put a whole, I'm not going to base my soul on somebody's near-death experience. Are you? Is that going to be truth? Is that subjective or is that objective? It's mysticism. It's looking to some other source in the Scripture, looking inside yourself. Oh, boy, if I haven't made you mad, I'm going to get you now. One more. This is a best-selling book. Seven million copies of a devotional book has been sold in America called Jesus Calling. I'll just read to you one little article that I received. A 10-year-old devotional book written in the voice of God suddenly became a commercial juggernaut And now the publisher is trying to reconcile its New Age origin with evangelical orthodoxy. Seventh best-selling book in America last year is 10 years old, written by a woman who's a former missionary. What sets Jesus' calling apart is that it's written in the voice of Jesus Christ, presented as speaking directly to the reader. This Jesus who spouts feel-good mysticisms like, and here's a quote from the book, as you walk along your life path holding my hand, you're already in touch with the essence of heaven that's nearness of me, end of quote. The book's soothing tone has made it wildly popular among believers, but its apparent claims to contain new revelation from God are also making it highly controversial. Thomas Nelson, the publisher, specifically requested that I not use the word channeling to describe Sarah Young's first-person writing in the name of, in the voice of Jesus, because the word channeling has New Age connotations, but it's sure hard to avoid it in describing the book's rhetorical approach. Thomas Nelson, though, has clearly heard the complaints from Christians that Jesus' calling is heresy. The introduction to recent editions of the book include subtle but significant changes. Now listen, in the early editions, and I have it here, Young's introduction pays specific respect to a book called God Calling that was written in 1932 by British writer A.J. Russell. Russell claimed not to have written God Calling himself. He said the book was written by two anonymous female listeners who wrote down messages they received from God. The Encyclopedia of New Age Beliefs, a guidebook published by the evangelical publishing house Harvest House, says God Calling, I'm quoting them, is replete with denials of biblical teaching. But Young's introduction said that God calling has become a treasure to me. And I'll read here the woman. This is the introduction of the book. I have it highlighted. During the year I began reading God Calling, a devotional book written by two anonymous listeners, these women practiced waiting quietly in God's presence with pencils and paper in hand, recording the messages they received from Him. The messages were written in first person with I meaning God. Six or seven years later, this little paperback became a treasure to me. It dovetailed remarkably well with my longing to live in Jesus' presence. The following year, I began to wonder if I too could receive messages during my times of communing with God. I knew that God communicated with me. Here's the phrase through the Bible, but I yearn for more. Scripture is not sufficient. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. So I began to listen to God with pen in hand, writing down what I believed He was saying. Soon the messages began to flow more freely. 
I bought a special notebook to record the words. I have continued to receive personal messages from God as I meditate on them. That's pure, raw mysticism. I get quiet, I'm contemplative, and I listen, and it's whatever I'm thinking I attribute as being the voice of God. And I caution you, that can be very, very misleading. And Christians buy it, and they never think. It is, under, it is something more than my... It's, 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 it's in essence saying God's Word is not sufficient. I need something more and something else. So my time is gone. All this is giving rise to what we call the emergent church movement today, which is really... Many sincere Christians are so weary of the entertainment and the shallowness of the seeker-sensitive contemporary churches. They're leaving them and going, but they're not coming to a church like this. They're going, to a, they're going back to liturgy and candles and contemplative prayer and ritual and personal experience, saying we want something that's so real. But they're looking for it outside the Bible. Let me conclude. I want you to love the Bible. I want you to never deviate from the Bible. The Bible is everything that pertains to life and godliness. Second Peter 1 and 3. The Bible is sufficient. You're going to go through your dry spells when it is dry and you don't want to read it and it doesn't stir you. But that's normal. That's normal. That's the flesh. But I tell you, God didn't withhold anything from you that you need to live a life of godliness and holiness and victory. He didn't hide from you anything that he's going to reveal if you sit down and close your eyes and write on a pad of paper and you might be opening up yourself to some other spirit than God's spirit if you do that. Please hear me. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. And my words are all you need that pertain to life and godliness. Stand to your feet with me, please.